Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. Welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. This week on the Baba Yaga Project, we are carrying on our theme of work, labor, doing things, do, doing, doing stuff as an adult stuff. who has to make their way in the doing world. Stuff. I mean, yeah, so do I, which isn't our fault. <coughs> we're like large mammals. We were not made to work. We're large omnivorous mammals we are made to like hunt occasionally gather a little bit and then just like Flop. vibe, vibe. <laughs> yeah. yeah i was made for vibe <laughs> just like not for work yeah i was made for like hanging out in a cave yeah. like i'm not meant to be doing stuff all the time no too much stuff we're doing too much that being said we are now on to the the learned professions Please. Getting into into the professional class, if you will. Now, we're going to be talking about a very specific idea of profession here. Like, now... Well, you in, are. In the I'm modern... going to be talking about 20th century yeah. stuff. Yes. But I, I'm saying, like, I feel like today a lot of people yeah. will call, like, you know, profession is interchangeable with job or career a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. No, then, I am yes, ta- we like, are still... We are talking about, talking like... About... Yes, that's yeah, that that's what what I'm saying. Because like I don't want people to be like, it's just any job, and it's like no. So I'm going to set out our definition essentially. So a profession is a job or occupation that is founded upon specialized educational training, and the purpose of that training is to basically perform services or give counsel to others and there is direct and definite compensation which is not like um you know so this isn't like a volunteer position or like uh you know like uh yeah you know it, it is a paid profession where you are giving counsel or some form of service to others so it is not a trade where you are performing like manual tasks or like physical tasks for someone and it's not an industry where you're like part of a factory system or part of a supply chain system in that way so that that definition gets a little bit looser through the 20th century but in for for the most part profession meant those things right it's specialized training the purpose of your training is that you are then able to give counsel or advice or some form of of service to others and a lot of professions have the same types of milestones so right it tends to be a full-time occupation there's usually um you know you, you are looking at some form of university or college degree there are typically associations for professions and there's usually some form of licensing laws and sets of professional ethics. 
So where does this start out? So it starts out in the Middle Ages because this is where universities start and the professions, I mean, that's kind of part of the definition of this is that you were educated at a university. So we've talked about universities before. And essentially, when you went to university in the Middle Ages, right, this is a formal institution. It starts out in the medieval European Christian setting. Prior to the establishment of universities, European higher education is going on in um, cathedral schools or monastic schools. So it's essentially places where monks and nuns are teaching. And for the most part, these are focusing on, you know, there are, we're, we're looking at, sorry, give me a sec. And these monastic and cathedral schools are started as early as the 6th century. But as we get a growth of population, there's a big population boom in the Middle Ages, and there is increasing urbanization. And there starts to be this demand, especially in the 12th century and into the 13th century, for a professionalized clergy. That is, you know, you want somebody who has been, like, thoroughly educated to be your priest or a bishop. You don't want somebody any, like, people are demanding more, essentially, of their spiritual leaders. So there's also the fact that, like, basically the rules around being a priest and like the rules of the Catholic Church are becoming a lot more complicated at this time. Um, the There's the Gregorian reform and they have this huge emphasis on canon law and studying the sacraments and you know you basically need to become well versed in this canon law which is like the it, it's like the Catholic Church's rules shall we say. <laughs> Um, but there were also, you know, again, with this huge population boom, you need more people, you need trained people. So there are these things like, um, they, they need people who can do kind of the secular aspects, such as like, basically what we would think of as like administration. Um, and so you need people who are able to use logic, disputation. Um, you also need them to be able to have theological discussions, how to preach effectively, and also people who can, like, do accounting and financing. Um, so it's really... Um, and, and we see a lot of this being pushed by Pope Gregory VII. So he was really pivotal in promoting, basically, this idea of what we would think of as a university. Because he has this papal decree in 1079. And... It ordered the regulated establishment of cathedral schools. So it's this idea that, okay, you can't just, like, run this school. There's a regulation to them. There's, you know, something resembling, you know, standardization and standards that you need to reach when you are teaching people. However, as this became more and more popular, because, again, if you wanted to advance in the ecclesiastical hierarchy, you needed to go to these schools and between like the demand for more educated people and a growing population quickly like the demand for schools just like completely outstrips how many cathedral schools there are 
um, just because a lot of the time at these cathedral schools, you'd have like one or two teachers teaching like a handful of people. So as a result, you start seeing migration of these schools to large cities. So you have Bologna, Rome, Paris. Um, and that's when you start seeing these like what we would think of as a university today, where there's multiple teachers, lots of students, lots of courses, etc. And the course of study, as we talked about, would be about six years for a Master of Arts degree, and a Bachelor's of Arts degree was awarded after completing the third or fourth year, which is where we get that term from today. And you would have the seven liberal arts, which were the trivium, which is grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and the quadrivium, which was like the second set that you would learn, which was arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. Uh, later in the Middle Ages, we also start to see Aristotelian philosophies such as physics, metaphysics, and moral philosophy gets incorporated into that curriculum, um, which, you know, and basically what they are doing here is a lot of the time, right, these courses are the courses that are offered at a university are not what we would think of today where you would take like, you know, thematic courses, right? Where it would be like, or, or, or subject themes, right? So you can't go to the university and take like history of Europe or whatever, like how we would think of it today. Rather, a course would be offered according to books. So you could take a course on a book by Aristotle, or you might take a course on a specific book from the Bible. And there were not really elective courses. Uh, everything was just sort of set for you. Like you have to learn the trivium, you have to learn the quadrivium, you have to learn later on um, Aristotelian philosophies. But there were, you know, you might be able to get choices of which teacher you wanted to work with, essentially, in which class you wanted to join. So that was something that you were, you know, maybe had a little bit of control over. Um, the other thing is, a lot of universities would only have, like, basically... So basically what would happen is once you had your Master of Arts, then you were done because that showed that you had basically at that point you were a learned gentleman, right? Like you would know grammar, logic, and rhetoric. You would know geometry, music, astronomy, and arithmetic, and you would also know Aristotelian philosophy. So you could go on and live your life and do your thing. Typically this is going to be for people who are, you know, again, gentry, aristocracy, wealthy people. But you can also go on to um, basically go into the higher faculties. So this is your postgraduate degrees. And there are three learned professions. So all this preamble is for me to say, these are the three learned professions that come out of the Middle Ages and that you are able to get in the Middle Ages. And these three like learned professions are what profession means for centuries. So you have theology, which is the most prestigious one. That's, you know, basically if you're doing theology, you are going on to, you know, either be, like, be part of the clergy in some way, work within the church in some way. 
Um, secondarily, you have law, so like becoming a lawyer. And last, but last and least is medicine, because until <laughs> I'm sorry, I just I really love every time. Yeah, like, funnily doctors. enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think, because this is the thing, right? In the Middle Ages, it takes a long time for physicians <laughs> to gain respect. They're dealing with the because physical here's the thing. of people, not with their immortal souls. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, and I know. It, I just... Well, genuinely, because it's... Well, and it's also right that, like, for the most part, like most people in the Middle Ages, in the early modern period, you are not consulting a physician. Like you yeah. do not have the cash to do that. The people who are taking care of you, like the people who are actually going to be taking care of you, who do the day-to-day -day grind of this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. it's going to be like you might have an apothecary, you might have a surgeon, <laughs> which surgeon at this point is just the person who does cutting who does amputations like this is not a like surgeon in the middle ages well, yeah, is like cutting mm, for healing isn't gross really a concept other than like cutting off infection like you're not yeah. going to yeah so like if you are yeah like if you are a surgeon what that essentially means is like that is the person who will cut off your like rotting diseased finger that got mangled or like was, you know they stabbed with gangrene a, a pike at some battle <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah. often barber surgeon we hear that term because that person would be both the guy cutting your hair and the guy cutting off assorted appendages <laughs> because he was the one with the sharp knives and the steady hands like that's just the reality right like medicine for most of the middle ages is not prestigious like it's kind of gross and dirty and like that's kind of also why a lot of mm -hmm. right medieval hospitals you yeah. do not get physicians in a medieval hospital because it's not like it, it's not a hospital, like hospitals as we think of them today do yeah. not exist in the Middle Ages. Like a hospital is a place for you to go and yeah. it, it's closer to hospice care. And like it is seen as something very humbling for monks and nuns or, you know, there could be secular like to lay people who work for there for them dying. to, yeah, to go and care for you because they are, you know, cleaning, oozing sores. They are you know, changing out your chamber pot, they're sponge bathing you, like, it's, it's Honestly, not a, like, so. you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've had a lot of, I, I, I mean, there are many nice doctors out there, but yeah, I mean, in the Middle Ages, it takes a long yeah. time for them to gain any respect, oh. and I will get into that, but let's Sorry, start out with the creme de la creme, the shining jewel in the crown of professions, <laughs> theology. Okay, let's go. <laughs> so I'm going to break down what theology actually is. So theol the definition is the systematic study of the nature of the divine and of it's religious tough to be belief. A God. <laughs> exactly. So. Theology is analyzing the supernatural. It can look into epistemology. Um, it looks into and asks questions about revelation. 
um, as in like how does God or gods or deities present themselves? How are they part of are are they part of the natural world? Are they transcendent? Are they above the natural world? Uh, are they able and willing to interact with us, with the world, with everything? How and when and why do they reveal themselves to humankind? And while n now in like so. Where was I? Theology. And whether or not supernatural beings right. want to interact yes. with us. Which I'm going to go with no, because we suck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people would disagree with you, but that is a, a stance you can take. Because this is where I'm getting at now, which is today in the modern age, theology is a, like, is still, it, theology has turned right. into a secular field, right? So, like, you can go to university and study theology and you know fully from a like removed yeah. secular perspective um that being said obviously today you know people will still use theology to like interact mm -hmm. more deeply with their religion or you can use like you can read theology to learn about other religious traditions that kind of thing or just to understand you know the nature of the divine in a more holistic sense, however you want to use it. But that is not <laughs> theology in the Middle Ages. Theology in the Middle Ages is <laughs> the Catholic Church. The Church with a capital C. One. So it's none of this secular nonsense. Yes, there is exactly one. And then there's and then there's the Orthodox Church for a bit, but we don't we don't pay attention to them. You know? Shh, it's what? fine. What schism? It's fine. <laughs> we can all just quietly go about our lives and and they will be orthodox and we shall be catholic and we will never need any more branches of christianity just kidding there was already more branches of christianity like you know in other parts of the world but in europe you are essentially got orthodox and catholic and i'm talking about catholic catholic because we're doing western europe and I didn't really want to dive in. I didn't want to do a deep dive into Orthodox theology for this week. Yeah. So because, uh, you know, professionalism and professionalization don't work the same way in Eastern Europe. So basically, when we are talking about theologians and theology in the Middle Ages, it is about Catholicism. So this is the understanding of Catholic doctrines and teachings. It's based on both the canonical strips canonical scriptures so all the books in the catholic bible and sacred tradition which is interpreted by the magisterium of the catholic church so it's basically theologians in the middle ages are working with both the bible and then also with like the writings and traditions that have been handed down through the church from various councils etc um Sorry, keep going. I'm going to cut all of the things that I just said out. That is okay. <laughs> okay. <coughs> right. So you have basically these ideas of 
you know, doctrines on faith, on morals, on what is considered a sacrament and what shouldn't be a sacrament, right? Like marriage doesn't become a sacrament until the Middle Ages, whereas like baptism becomes a sacrament much earlier. So it's basically this is the type of stuff people are doing in the Middle Ages is arguing and working through and debating all the different like points of doctrine in the church and you can do that you know again as a clergy member or like i was saying before you might do theology like uh you could be a monk you could be a priest and like this is how you move up through the hierarchy as being a really good theologian and if you're super duper good at it you can become very important and become a doctor of the church and like you know all of that sort of thing so like if you're someone like Thomas Aquinas, you're like, yes, A+. Plus, and then the church <laughs> gives you a little gold star beside your name. So it's, it. I mean, obviously, like, the jokes about the Middle Ages is always like, oh, yes, they're all just sitting around being like, you know, how many angels <laughs> can dance on the head of a pin? Which, like, yes, some people were sitting around just thinking about that. But we also have a lot of, like, also, people dealing with very real, like, down-to-earth problems, down to earth such problem. as, like... How does space and time work, and where do <laughs> angels exist within it? What is it, an infinite number That's of angels? That's very true. That's true. It could have been an infinite number of angels, but it also could be also, none. Like, we can, don't know. Do they want to dance on the dance head of the pin? Because they might not have arms and legs. They might just be flaming balls of light and eyes. It's pretty ableist of you to say <laughs> that a flaming ball of light and eyes can't dance. It can at You don't least... need arms and legs to dance. You just need <laughs> rhythm. Just, just like pulse. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Be not afraid. Boom, 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 boom. This is why they have to say, be not afraid every time they appear. Because <laughs> they show up playing dubstep. To these, like, you know, first century yeah, Jesus, shepherds in a Jesus field. Jesus is the greatest beat drop. <laughs> greatest beat drop of this millennia. Anyway, I was also going to say, they're doing stuff like deciding that, hey, maybe if people want to get married, they do have to do that in front of witnesses. Uh, because as we've discussed in previous episodes, when you... Get when when you get married, but there's no witnesses. It becomes a real problem when one of you wants to leave the marriage and the other one is like, <laughs> "But we have a child together. Like we are de- like we were married you though." And they're like, the "Well, and there's no one can't prove see. it." Are you married? We- <laughs> are you married? Exactly. Um, also, things like you know who can perform a baptism and when and under what circumstances because. Fun fact, anyone can perform an emergency baptism in the Catholic Church, including lay I'm people. i everything. <laughs> I mean, you can go right on ahead. <laughs> I believe in you. I mean, this is mostly instituted as like, a, my baby is going to die, and, and I don't think the priest will get here fast enough. Can I give them like a like a quick baptism where I like... Just throw some water on them and say a prayer. And they're like, "Eh, that seems good enough to me. Okay. So we have just finished discussing theologians, which was the cream of the crop. 
of the professions in the Middle Ages. And now we will take a slight step down. <laughs> a, a, a step down in prestige <laughs> to discuss lawyers. <laughs> you know, they, they are all so fine. <laughs> you go home to your mom. You're like, mom, I'm going to become a lawyer. And she's like, mm, okay. Oh, that's fine. Okay. All right. I'm a little disappointed, but you know, not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> why can't you be more like your brother jerome he's a doctor of the church <laughs> theologian you know <laughs> oh you're our third son so i guess this is the best we can do no in all seriousness being a lawyer was a well-respected <laughs> profession um but you know when we are talking about law as a profession right. um Right. So you go from, like, there are people doing the legal things, writing contracts, doing assorted legality things in the Roman Empire, obviously. But then the Roman Empire in the western half of Europe kind of collapses. Mm, It's not not a great time. And then, you know, the eastern half does fine. So they just just keep keep on trucking. They're just, they, they become the Byzantine Empire, they're doing fine. But Western, they're like, mm, well, we have some some interesting situations because suddenly you have all these goddamn barbarians showing up and they're like, what are these written laws? We are ruled by men, not laws. <laughs> As opposed to the Romans who are ruled by laws, not men. <laughs> dumb history nerd joke. Um, anyway, so yeah, it, it becomes a lot of like... Uh, this is when we we talk about you know like what what people would refer to as the dark ages, right. i.e., warlords running around, grabbing territory, mm-hmm. and then you know you have like partial partitions. So when someone dies, like all of his sons split up the land, so you don't have that nice primogeniture in there yet. <laughs> yeah. So things are really in flux. Laws are kind of wishy-washy, mishy-mashy. You're also getting the fact that a lot of the Germanic tribes and, you know, people who they're interacting with don't necessarily have a written law. They're more working on, like, an oral tradition of, you know, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. it's really kind of a, a, a mishmash amalgamation. So obviously being a legal professional was a kind of not a thing, kind of not no bueno you just you're out of a job so you know you didn't really have what you would think of as like a canonist or a modern lawyer however from around 1150 you get this increasing number of men who become experts in canon law so this is you know again that is like church law specifically Mm -hmm. But it is still like you are becoming an expert in the um, kind of what what this law is and what the different rules are within the church hierarchy. So, I mean, at this point, it's right like okay. So basically, I'm I'm just gonna summarize this. So it's basically like you are learning. Um, 
canon law because at this point right like this is something that you can actually like take to an ecclesiastical court right right? like there is canon law like that is the law of the roman catholic church so you can take like suits to Mm -hmm. a court of canon law um so again like this is a, a lot of the time especially you know in the 1150s 1160s a lot of a, an increasing number of men start learning canon law specifically because they are trying to um, become priests, mm-hmm. right? And this is a kind of a way for them to move up the hierarchy. However, from 1190 to 1230, we start seeing a shift where people actually start to practice canon law as a profession in itself. So you are not a priest. Uh. But you are an expert in canon law. You can, you know, give advice on canonical law. Um, So these are the kinds of places where basically things that weren't a secular law could be tried and where you could like it, it was a regular court, but it was the like religious court, essentially, if that makes sense. Um, There's also the fact that over time, the renewed efforts of these laws we start to see um an effort on the part of the church to kind of regulate this so in 1231 you have two french councils and they both state that if you want to be a lawyer you have to swear an oath of admission before practicing in the bishop's courts in their regions Um, this is also happening in london in the 1230s and during that same time in the 1230s, Frederick II, who's the emperor of Sicily at this point, had a oath in his civil courts. Because in the Middle Ages, there basically, you can go to the ecclesiastical court or you can go to the civil court. Ecclesiastical court is going to deal with a lot of stuff like, um, you know, it, it's, it's a little, it, it gets a little murky. Mm-hmm. But they can deal with things that are more like violation of canon law, like adultery or like, okay. you know, slander. <laughs> like that's like something we've, yeah. no, like genuinely stuff that we've talked about before a lot of the time. And it's interesting, even into the Protestant Reformation, you can still get women going into ecclesiastical courts because a lot of the time these systems just roll over into, you know, whichever new religion takes up. Um, so a lot of those cases we've talked about in the past where you have women taking each other to court in ecclesiastical court is they're allowed to represent themselves there. Right. That is where they're going when they, you know, when someone says that, uh, you know, your house has no thatch. <laughs> well, slander and bearing false witness against thy neighbor is a ecclesiastic jurisdiction rather than civil, which would be more like property disputes okay. and that kind of thing. To To very much like I'm sorry to anyone out there who's an expert in medieval law. I am giving you the, like, quick and dirty version of, like, if it's dealing with, like, property and inheritance, it's probably civil. And if it's going into religious rules, it's going to be ecclesiastical. Yeah. Um, And then you start seeing this basically more and more uh, throughout the 13th century. You see um, it being adopted by the civil courts. So the civil courts follow the suits of the ecclesiastic courts where they start saying okay you need to if you're going to be a lawyer or a barrister or like different words for it um 
So you basically have to... Uh, like, you, you basically have to be a knowledgeable real lawyer to serve in these courts. Um, and you have this, these ideas of these oaths of admission um, continue to gain traction throughout the 13th century. And you also get this idea of, you know, professionalization where you can actually be punished for um, deception. Like if you are claiming to be a trained lawyer, but you are not, then you actually can be punished by the state or by, um, by the church. Um, and there's also admission procedures of, okay, if you want to entrance into this court, you again, you need to swear oaths that you are, you know, going to practice under good faith and that kind yeah. of thing. So, I mean, that's essentially how the lawyer, as we would think of it today, comes to be. It's through this, like, experts in canon law being regulated and then people who become experts in civil law also becoming kind of regulated over time. Um, right? Because in a lot of in, in a lot of situations, people would be representing themselves in court. Like, this, it's not as if these courts didn't exist before. It's just that you would show up to court on your own and be like, yeah, you know, John Smith stole my chicken. <laughs> or like, you know, my husband is impotent and I want a divorce. Yeah. Actual thing that you could go to court for. <laughs> so like, um, because if, if a man was found to be impotent, then it was, um, you know, it, the marriage was, I, if he became impotent over the course of the marriage, then like, that's kind of no bueno. Like mm -hmm. you're, you're just stuck. But if you like on your wedding night, he can't get it up. Like doesn't, it doesn't count as a marriage because it has not been consummated. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we've talked about this. So, like, you know, that's essentially how this gets its start, is people saying, actually, I want someone who's an expert to, to help me out yeah. here, <laughs> rather than me just showing up in court and being like, I accuse this woman of slander. <laughs> now, last, and again, certainly, certainly least, was filthy, filthy riffraff. Medical doctors. <laughs> Middle Ages. You're a medical doctor. Get out of here. Okay, that's again a bit of a... Uh, a bit you of a... Are, you are going to lose for so them. many listeners just shitting on everyone. <laughs> I'm not shitting on everyone. I'm just, just, I'm just medical doctors. <laughs> Just, just medieval <laughs> medical doctors. <laughs> I am talking about in the Middle Ages. You are, they're like, oh, like all the universities, all the other like doctors, like doctor of theology, doctor of law. They're like, oh, I can't believe we have to admit these people. Ew. Yeah. Because basically, right, like, prior to this kind of medicalization of the, or the, the professionalization of doctors. Mm -hmm. Basically what happens is you have a long standing tradition 
obviously of healing and of medicine and that is very respectable it's not a profession but it is perfectly respectable right you have hippocrates you have galen you have people who are writing medical treatises and people can use these medical treatises in the ancient greek world it makes its way up through the roman period and it's it stays right there through the middle ages this is where we get ideas like the four humors balancing the humors um you know, a variety of herbal remedies. And obviously these things would be copied and recopied and people would add things in the margins and they would insert new recipes and like, you know, swap out ingredients so that it could work locally because obviously something that's easily available in Greece is maybe not going to be super easy to find in Norway, but like you can, you, you can kind of see where the trains go, right? Mm-hmm. And for the most part, right, a lot of this care is going to go towards people who would be seen as, like, medics or healers. Um, you know, so uh, you might be a medic on the battlefield where you are, like, putting people back together. You could be a healer or other form of, like, kind of non, non-professionalized non person, right? So you haven't gone to university for this. You've You've maybe studied under someone else. You've maybe had an apprenticeship or, like... You know, maybe your your grandfather was the town, you know, healer. So now you've taken on that role, right? Um, you would also have for women, you'd have midwives who would often do a lot with women's health just generally, not just with childbirth. Um, and as we've talked about before, it was also the role of women within the house to, like, nurse their own family members often. So... Or, or community members just in general. And uh, again, it was there was a lot of hospice care coming from m- nuns, from monks, from lay people who worked in monasteries alongside uh, monks and nuns and in hospitals. So what exactly am I talking about when I talk about a medical doctor in the Middle Ages? A physician. That is a very specific yeah. thing. A physician in the Middle Ages is not going to touch you. They are not going to cut you like a surgeon. They are not going to touch anywhere on your body. Was, they are not going to examine I was the body. Blown away by that when I learned about this, especially because, as a rabid fan of Outlander and a person who goes from yeah. the twentieth century practicing medicine <laughs> into the past and is just like it fully examining people, and then when I was reading about like what actual medicine in the eighteenth century looked like. And I was like, how was she not burned before this? Because, like, in this super rural area where, like, the early enlightenment that was happening in London hadn't made it there yet. And they were still like, yeah, witches exist. Like, bitch just walking around touching people. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Because she's not a a physician, physician, yeah, She is, like, you know, she she would live in in that circle of, like, midwife healer but would they still be allowed to touch you okay yes they are allowed to touch you a midwife can touch you a surgeon can touch you an apothecary I stand can touch corrected <laughs> a physician will not touch you because a physician is not there to look at your body they're not there to examine they're not there to do anything like that what the physician does the physician has gone to the university and they have learned at the university the way that the body works they have learned the humors and the systems that make up the humors and how to balance this they know how to diagnose a disease they know how to give you a prognosis they know how to 
you know, help you achieve balance again so that you become well. Mm -hmm. So what a physician does at this point, they are basically exclusive to people who can afford them. So we are talking about, you know, gentry, aristocrats, um, maybe a wealthy family. Sometimes towns in the later Middle Ages would employ a town physician where, you know, as part of the city's budget, there was like a physician that people could go to or who could go to people in the town to take care of them. But what a physician would do, it would be very much like bedside medicine. So they show up, they sit with you and they ask you, okay, what are your symptoms? And I tell them, okay, I have fevers and I'm coughing and I'm coughing up a lot of, a lot of phlegm and I am, you know, dizzy and very exhausted. And they will say to you, okay, so your diagnosis is that you are too hot, you are feverish, you are you know, your body is trying to purge your excess humors. So what you need to do, because you're clearly too hot and your body is trying to, like, purge you of things, you know, we're maybe going to get, tell you to take lukewarm, maybe cool baths because that'll help bring down your fever. Here's, like, a recipe maybe for, like, some... Uh, like, like some kind of a soothing cough syrup. And, you know, you should really avoid eating anything, um, th- things like meat and wine, because that's going to heat up your yeah. body. And you should really, for the, for the next while, just eat cool things, which, you know, were t- tended to be things like, um, like fresh greens and fresh vegetables, which, again, not super accessible to everyone at all times. Like, if it's the winter, they're like, eh, well, I'll do your best. But, you know, th- there was this idea of, like, that is the job of the physician, is to give you counsel and advice. It's really, it's not until the 19th century that physicians start touching you, and the only reason they start doing that is because we get this, um, basically what they call hospital medicine, where in a lot of like very late 18th and then into the 19th century uh, in Paris, you would have doctors started to work at hospitals, Mm -hmm. but in that everyone in these hospices essentially um, was very, very poor. Mm -hmm. So they had no standing. They had no Mm -hmm. rights. No one was going to care. And they said, okay, I really want to observe patients who are having these different yeah so they could basically so that's that's where that kind of respect essentially like respectability goes away and that's why they are able to like touch your body palpate you have you undress do all that like in the middle ages the power is with the patient the doctor is there to serve the patient and it's not till the 19th century that that really starts to flip where the doctor is the one in control. The doctor touches you. The doctor puts devices on you. The doctor tells you what you're experiencing. Whereas in the Middle Ages, you say, here are my symptoms. And the doctor says, okay, I I believe what you're telling me and I'm going to give you what you, I'm going to tell you what you should do about I'm it. I'm torn about my feelings right now. Because as a yeah, woman with it's... serious chronic illnesses uh, who hath been ignored by multiple doctors, I'm like, I like I like modern medicine because like they know what 
in some cases what is actually wrong with me but also like I went through 14 years of doctors telling me sometimes women just faint before somebody like actually believed that like something was wrong with me (laughs) and I found out that I have like a serious neurological disorder (laughs) so I'm like maybe if they couldn't touch me and they had to just listen to me and believe what I told them (laughs) yeah I mean it's it's definitely one of those things where it's like I am like I am not here to be like all modern medicine is bad and everything people do now is bad and I'm not sitting here being like oh yeah everything was great in the middle ages oh no yeah like my wandering womb doesn't like (laughs) yeah like I mean probably someone would be like I don't know Devin like we should put some leeches on you and like here I I took this to the church and we prayed <laughs> over this like mush of herbs. Eat this and you maybe will feel better. Like you know what? I, like I'm definitely appreciate the efficaciousness like, where we of modern medicine. Yes, I just like the idea. Well, yeah, of and I mean, a doctor has to believe what I tell them. I think is is what I'm yes. getting. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think that is something that uh, in in many ways has been lost is that idea of the patient knows their own body and they can tell you their symptoms and then you just believe (laughs) them Um, rather than like um, kind of going into going into situations assuming that the patient is exaggerating or making things up or you know that it's probably not a big deal like it doesn't um yeah, sometimes when but yeah, so that's feats, it really is zebras, guys. Exactly. <laughs> um, but to give you some actual dates on when this is happening, uh, basically the first medical school opens up in Salerno, which is in southern Italy, in the ninth century, and basically they are getting this real. They get this big international reputation as the Hippocratic city mm-hmm. because they take influences from Greek. Latin, Arabic, and Hebrew sources. So, you know, they're taking the whole thing. every type of medical, yeah, every medical treatise <laughs> basically that they can get their hands on. They're like, yes, bring it here. We're going to teach people how to how to do this. We're going to teach them how to do it properly. Um, and then, you know, you would get, basically, you would go there for three years of, like, preliminary, like, kind of undergrad studies, yeah. if you will. And then you would do five years of just medical study um and that was basically kind of the place to be if you wanted to be a Mm -hmm. physician for a very long time but then between the you know in in the 13th sorry in the 12th century um we do start to also see more um schools of medicine popping up either independently or um, as faculties in existing universities. So Montpellier in France, Italy's uh, University of Padua and Bologna were leading schools. And, you know, by the end of the, like, in, in to, end of 13th century into the 14th century, Oxford and Cambridge start giving out doctorates of, like, medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also get... In the 14th century, the university in Prague, the, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this and I'm so sorry, 
Jagiellonian University in Krakow in 1364, 1365, University of Vienna gets University of Vienna, and then Heidelberg gets one in 1386. So it's this kind of 13th and into the 14th century where you really start to see universities saying, okay, we are going to take medicine seriously as a serious academic discipline and we are going to give people rigorous training and then that is how you get this idea of again like a trained professional doctor as compared to you know a like healer or midwife or you know otherwise a person who has some medical knowledge versus the physician who is supposed to be the like I know everything about the body and how it works. Right. And that's the, those are the professions and that's honestly roughly what 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 are the professions until like well into the 19th century like it, teachers maybe get profession status in the 19th century a bit but even then that's like only if you're a man and you're gonna make it your career because obviously a woman (laughs) can't like if you're teaching in a one-room schoolhouse you're a teacher but you don't count as a professional like yeah and that these are the real professions more complicated in the 20th century that i'm going to talk about a little bit um with teachers specifically sorry that i probably ran super long just like oh well making fun of doctors everything <laughs> yeah medieval doctors where everyone's like ew yeah. you're not a real doctor <laughs> only people who know theology and law are real doctors um you say that laughing but jp says that all the time so jean-philippe our I'm guest of last week slash mom Marie, uh says that all the time I'm just saying a doctor of philosophy is he the OG is that JP, doctorate, and I will die on that hill. JP is that uh, that meme where it's like, all right, don't talk about this at Thanksgiving or whatever, and then it's like three drinks <laughs> in, and they're like yelling. He's that, but it's about how doctors shouldn't be called doctors. Yes, they should be called physicians. <laughs> I agree. Do not encourage this. <laughs> He does it in public where other people can see. We're going to present it in front. I hate it when you guys do that. <laughs> he was right about the pizza. I'm sorry he was right about the pizza. I'm sorry we let him be right one time. <laughs> Once every other time we're like, mm, damn it, damn it, JP. <laughs> You're on thin ice. <laughs> and then one time we're like, Maybe JP was right. Fine. He's allowed to order pizza that I can't eat while I'm sleeping. (laughs) I guess it's my turn now. It is your turn. Tell us about 20th century professions where it radically changes Um. Yeah, so I'm going to be mostly talking about um, David Graeber's work. So he's not technically a historian though he does some historical work he's technically an anthropologist close enough (laughs) historians we just cannibalize everything and are just like yes more data Um, points but i'm mostly going through some of the ideas that he's proposed in um bullshit jobs (laughs) 
Nice. So building off of um, obviously like what you talked about with the the specific um, professions that develop through the early modern period, then we get to uh, things stay pretty much the same until right industrialization, which we talked about last time, where we talked specifically about the workers, but obviously there were the owners of these industries. Um, and we talked briefly about Carnegie and some of the like bizarro buckwild ideas that he had um but that those ideas that we talked about are are super important and really lead to what happens in the 20th century um which in the later half of the 20th century we have this massive advent of professional and managerial jobs that it could be argued and is argued obviously in this book don't actually do anything they are, for lack of a better term, uh, bullshit. So, oh, that's fair. Um, yeah, so right at the beginning of the 20th century, we have a bunch of um, economists talking about how if technology continues to progress at the rate that it was then, um, we will essentially like automate people out of having to work um, in the productive style that was understood at the end of the 20 at the end of the 19th century right so the most famous one is in 1930 john Maynard keynes predicts that by the end of the 20th century um technology would have progressed to such a point that it would allow for a 15 hour work week that people who are actually producing things so much of their job would be automated that they would only need to work for 15 hours a week and everything that we needed to be produced would be produced and moved and all of this stuff um Base. And here we are, uh, you know, 22 years into the 21st century, and we are quote unquote working more than ever. Now, how much of that actual time that we spent supposedly working is actually doing anything to benefit society is questionable. Um, so what we have with this text that I'm sort of really examining here and looking at for this idea of like professional specifically in North America, but this North American model um, expands out into the EU and other um, like already industrialized spaces. Obviously these things are a little bit different yeah. in places like uh, India and China where they are still industrializing. And so we have more spaces that are more similar to right 19th early 20th century spaces there where it is very industrialized yeah. but we can look even um in terms of a percentage the for how much stuff is being produced um the number of industrial workers is a much lower percentage of world population than it it would be if we were still operating under the technology of the 19th century so we have automated out a lot of jobs um which yep. is fine. We don't need to be working. That's so why? That yeah. So excellent. why are we working so much if we're not like literally not? If that work is not actually producing anything, um, and right. So we have this thesis that's put forward by uh, capitalists, essentially <laughs> free market capitalists, that um, the answer is consumerism. That we work more because we want more stuff and we need 
these we need jobs in order to make all of the stuff to have all of the stuff and it's just like patently not true um we don't so uh when we there's a study um that looked at the jobs that people held from uh, 1910 to 2000 and the number of people who were listed as having jobs in the professional managerial clerical sales and service categories have tripled from one quarter of the entire population to three quarters of employment um and essentially like the what had been the three quarters of employment that were productive jobs in agriculture um or factories or you know logistics like actually the person who is moving items from a space to another space not the people who are like yeah tracking on a computer where the truck goes no but like the people doing the physical part of logistics like Um, all of those most of those right the three quarters of those jobs have been automated away um and again even in industrializing nations um productive workers did not count for nearly the percentage of the world population that they once did or that if all of these jobs were needed to produce things you know would exist um but so like considering this if the answer was consumerism um if the answer was that we wanted these actual items we wanted things uh and we needed to do all of this work to get them but I watch things that I'm talking to her um like right the there's just like a, there's this gap of like if it was consumerism there would be more people actually producing things in order to get these things um but they're not and so people should have all of this free time saved by automation um but essentially what's happened is that we're not allowed to have that um and what's happened is that there's been this massive growth in what's called the administrative sector right um these are things like financial services telemarketing um the massive expansions in things like corporate law academic and health administration uh human resources and public relations um if anyone who is listening has one of those jobs and feels like they contribute nothing to their workplace um and or if you have interacted with someone and you're like i feel like this person contributes nothing to my workplace the likelihood that that is true is really really high um essentially these are like just like they're they're not really doing anything um the other sector that has exploded um are parts of the service sector that provide um, services yeah. to people who are doing these administrative jobs that they would normally do themselves but can't do because they're working. So things like dog walking, dog pet washing, pet watching, um, house cleaning, uh, de- food delivery, f- various food services, um, all yeah. of these like child care, care all of these of things thing. that you would normally just like spend your free time puttering around your house doing um, while you do other things, you know, like doing your own laundry, uh, 
these these things are having to be outsourced to other people because you are busy in your office um, telling someone that they're allowed to move something, you know, 45 inches to the right in another office somewhere far away, you know, whatever, these kinds of things. Um, and so, right, David Graeber published this essay called Bullshit Jobs that he eventually turned into a book. Um and talked about these specific kind of jobs um, that he called bullshit. <laughs> um, and they are particularly these prof- in this professional class. Um, and they are jobs that he says, um, if the position were eliminated and no discernible difference would be made in that workplace or the rest of the world... Um, and if, in fact, things might be better or easier to accomplish without that position, um, that might be a bullshit job. The second category is that the person who is doing the job feels themselves that the job shouldn't exist. Um, so you wrote an essay theorizing that a lot of these jobs are what's happening because um, it doesn't seem that people doing most work are actually producing things. Um, We've also seen that, like, at most organizations, um, there is a, there has been, like, a sort of continued downsizing and layoffs being done, but they're being done to the class of people that are actually engaging with the products. Um, And so those people are working more and more hours um, and doing more and becoming burnt out while, like, salaried, um, quote-unquote paper-pushing jobs are expanding. Um, and he's, like, asking, why, why is this happening? Like, what's going on here? Um, what has been going on throughout the uh, 20th century to lead us to this type of professionalization? Um, so instead of these jobs where you do need a lot of education, where you have to, you know, know the law of a place. You have to know how the human body works. You have to understand canon law or whatever for, like, these positions that you were talking about. These are just positions where you come in and they're like, all right, this is how this email software works and you're going to sit here for eight hours a day and possibly spend most of it on Facebook. Um, So he wrote this essay and then shortly afterwards um, some polling institutes started doing studies about this and so in 2015 we get a study out of the uk uh that said had 50 percent of workers responded saying that they felt their job did actually like contributed meaningfully to the world and 37 percent said that their jobs did not right and now in the original essay uh Graeber suggests that it might be as high as 20%. So it's a full, like, 20% more. Almost half of the population saying that their jobs contributed nothing to the world. They were going in and working 40 hours a week and contributing nothing to anyone. Um, The next year they did the study in Holland and they got 40% of people who are saying that their job contributed nothing. Um, and this is slightly different to just people who hate their jobs. So there was also polls done of service workers who hate their jobs, but also recognize that they are doing something right. They're fulfilling a service. So like, yeah, you know, a restaurant needs a hostess. The servers yeah. need to know where people are. They need to be equitably distributed throughout the restaurant. 
you know, you need servers to bring food, yeah. you need cooks who know how to cook things and aren't going to hurt themselves, you know, things like that. Those all contribute yeah. meaningfully to the world, right? Um, they might yeah. suck and that industry might need to be reorganized entirely, uh, but they're not doing nothing. They're doing a thing. Um, the other thing that, like, he clarifies is that... Um, Bullshit jobs can be pernicious, but all pernicious jobs are not uh, bullshit. So, like, right, a bullshit job can cause actual harm in the world, but not all jobs that cause harm are bullshit. His example is a mafia hitman, right? (laughs) That is... The hitman is doing something. And he doesn't think that his job is unnecessary, right? So he's like, yeah, we need to kill this guy. And I know that it might be bad, but like, this is a thing that I have to do. Whereas like, (laughs) the other option he compares it to is um, a foreign currency speculator. (laughs) Where it's like, yeah, you're not doing anything. No change in the world is being affected by what you're doing, except for... uh, people my uh, people who you don't know who are so far down this like line uh are probably getting poorer because of your foreign currency yeah. speculation um yeah yeah and so like why why does this exist um and there's sort of a, a whole system of understanding this and obviously like as we're saying this um this is a uh, like historical result so there wasn't like somebody sitting there in the 19th century being like ha 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 i am going to make a financial system so toxic like that's not what was going on but it's the result of a, a century of choices that have been made by the uber wealthy um and this comes out of <coughs> sorry the um, mid to late 19th century um, and bureaucratic corporate capitalism. So this is what JP studies. JP, do you want to come talk some more about corporations? Bureaucratic corporate capitalism? He that says that he's busy. Like a fun time. <laughs> what could be more important? No, it's just, just we're just chatting I, about I, corporations I, I, and how they're evil. And we talked about, he mentioned um, a lot of this in the previous episode, actually. Um, Yeah. Because I'm about to talk about uh, Andrew Carnegie again. So, right, all of these massive uber-wealthy dudes that we talked about in the last episode, Carnegie and Rockefeller and all of them, um, were initially called robber barons, right? Um, I don't think that we mentioned that particular, but if you went through a U.S. history class at any point in the past 40 years, you would have heard this term. Um, and that was because, like, initially, uh, a solid portion of the North American population really hated these guys. They were like, this is evil, and you should not have this kind of wealth. Um, and, like, we talked about before, this was also why, like, Christmas changed so radically, because, like, people yeah. did not trust these uber-rich dudes and uh yeah they did not want to continue to live in the squalor they were being forced into um that's why we had the socialist movements that we did um but by the end of the 19th century by the 1890s right 
said robber barons, the super wealthy, had really started trying to <coughs> create like an intellectual response to all of these socialist and anarchist writers. Um, and that's where we get things like the the text that we talked about in the last episode for, that Carnegie wrote, which is Gospel of Wealth, which is exactly why I confused it with Wealth of Nations. Um, so Gospel of Wealth was this yeah. annoying text that he wrote talking about why uh, he wasn't going to give poor people more money. He was just going to build a bunch of libraries. Um but that's like the most famous example of these. There's a whole bunch of like treaties written by the uber wealthy and their compatriots um, talking about why we needed this class of person and why they should be controlling finances in the way that they were and um, why guilds and unions should not be dictating uh, like government spending and in effect that the government shouldn't be doing this either that um there was a system of quote-unquote scientific management um that there was the economy was something that existed outside of political decisions that the the economy was a real thing that it could be scientifically studied outside of policy that the the market existed you know regardless of what government you were trying anyway, there's like all of this weird stuff um and that you needed like rich people who understood the economy to make these choices about how wealth was going to be spent um, and that they needed to guide the finances of the world and help better society and, quote-unquote, better the race. <laughs> uh, which... Love me some eugenics. Yeah, yeah. We're going down that road. Yeah, so, like, a lot of this does go into, like, well, if we don't give poor people money, then maybe they'll stop breeding and maybe there won't be so many poor people. Um which just love that. That's definitely how that works. Um, and so they were able to really like effectively argue for this idea that people, and it became it became really popular, especially with the Second Great Awakening, which was happening at the same time that the good people worked. Um. And that working got you the things that you needed and that if you didn't work for it, you didn't deserve it. And um, that the super wealthy worked for what they had um, and they were just smarter and better than you. Um, and they used some of this like evangelical language that capitalized off of that movement um, and really shift shifted the... Uh, um, sort of zeitgeist of North America away from what the socialists and syndicalists had been building off of, which was this idea of a quote-unquote like producerism that um, people, craftsmen and artisans, this is the late 19th century was the, the period of the craftsman movement. You might see a lot of like, if you go and look at like yeah. craftsman houses or craftsman furniture, they really wanted to bring back a guild system and say like, we are in, by learning these trades, we are entering into this like um, grand tradition of human production that like you can build something slowly and to last and like you can 
learn this and be skilled and produce something and you can use technologies to make it easier to do and you can learn to make this better with technology in a shorter amount of time so that you actually have to do less work right that the value is in actually producing an item to um a system of consumerism where you can show that you are like a good and valued person by how much stuff you can purchase um which is what the the sort of age that we are living in now that really like evangelicals just really jumped on that tragic um where like you can show that like god loves you by how much stuff you can buy not what you can make and whether or not that is good and benefit to beneficial to society but whether or not you are being graced with cash right um and so so we have the that prong we also have the fact that during this period um we talked about workers last time and specifically factory workers but a lot of these working class neighborhoods were also made up of a lot of service workers and i think jp did talk about this that um we had like domestic servants um and like gardeners and taxi drivers and all of these sort of like service workers um cooks and things people who would be working in these big houses but not living in the big houses anymore um and that shift becomes really important that you no longer lived on an estate there would be a neighborhood that you commuted to to work there and then would commute back to your working class neighborhood um and that creates a sort of ambiguity with one who is a worker and two what counts as work um and there's some things that are at play there one of which is a major misogyny (laughs) so a lot of the things that are actually productive work um but are done in a domestic sphere are seen as like quote-unquote women's work regardless of whether they're being done by a woman so cooks um domestic servants, people who are making and producing clothing, um, at at any level, you know, tailors even, um, all of these things started really to move from these are trades that are learned by skilled people um, to these are just tasks that are done for money and they have the value that a woman's work in the home would have. And so that's part of it. It also, um, by leaning really heavily into that, fractures the working class. So you have people who are doing factory labor, um, and especially like people who are doing intense factory labor that involves like um, a lot of physicality. Um, that's being seen yeah. as labor with a capital L. And then you have other working class people who are just whatever um they are well i mean it's and it continues yeah. still today right this idea of quote-unquote unskilled yeah exactly labor, when it doesn't doesn't exist nonsense yeah all labor is skilled if you're doing <laughs> if you're a producing task, something it, it requires skilled. a skill um yeah yeah and but like by doing that right you you galvanize a class of people um Oh yeah, against themselves, and so that's why that's part of why right now, especially um, in this right post uh, managerial world, um, it is so hard to do something like a general strike because service workers don't yeah. see themselves as being the same as 
industrial workers don't see themselves being the same as, you know, like transport workers don't see themselves as being the same as teachers. Um, And then also you have the added situation of there being a sort of subclass of quote unquote professionals, but who are managers who are not producing anything, um, but also don't want to see, be seen as workers because if workers really get what they want, then we'll realize that their jobs are meaningless and that we should get rid of those jobs. And because of the way that our system is set up right now, cannot conceive of a situation where people just have their needs met regardless of whether or not they are doing productive work, right? Like, yeah. maybe all of these people who are doing administrative work just get their needs met and then they can funnel that into being musicians or writers or whatever or just like existing and taking care of their families but like we can't imagine that world because of this work that this cultural work and this political work that was done in the early 19th century and early 20th or the late 19th century and early 20th century to like undermine these ideas and we see uh in we can trace like sort of exactly where this like political shift happens right so uh we have right the 19th century quote-unquote comes to a close uh and you have the world wars and then you enter this post-war period where there is a throughout well throughout world war ii and then into the post-war period there's a massive explosion in social services right people are having their needs met um there is a social safety net there is socialized health care in a lot of countries um right we have things like uh, social security and livable wages and people automation of a lot of jobs and people are having to work less for more money um and that is good and more people are able to go to university and are starting to realize that like oh well maybe i shouldn't have to work at all if the jobs that my parents were doing are going to be automated and we get the 1960s (laughs) Right? Where there is this huge yep. cultural shift yep. where people are like, yo, maybe we can change the whole world and maybe we don't have to be slaves to capitalism and maybe we can just make enough money or like get enough money or whatever we want to use to get food and whatnot to get our needs met maybe we only have to work enough and like use technology enough to do that and then we can just go drop acid and have sex in upstate new york right like well and that's the problem (laughs) that's that's what happens when poor people aren't working 16 hours a day yeah and it's but like that also they're they're just doing people and having when people are doing things like that when people are doing one things like that yeah and two things like hey maybe black people should be considered people um maybe they should be allowed to go to university maybe women should be allowed to go to university maybe all of these subjugated classes should be able to like exist in the world when things like this start happening in the u.s and and all of those movements right we have to remember that uh like right the march on washington was the march on washington for what is it rights and labor right it's for civil rights and like 
they want it was a it was a labor movement as well we wanted free people and that includes like a living wage and a living wage for people of all races um so like when these movements are for like civil and social rights as well as for workers rights the that means that yeah people want to be able to have free time and you know do drugs in a field in upstate new york <laughs> but they also don't want someone else to have a literal billion dollars that they got from making some subjugated class pee in a bottle for, right? You know, like Amazon. Jeffrey Bezos. <laughs> you did it. Like Amazon shouldn't. Jeffrey Amazon shouldn't Bezos. Exist, shouldn't exist. Wouldn't exist in this world. Copyright struck. Um, and so, what do what does the ruling class do? Right, they lean back into this political movement. This political thought movement of like let's push back reintroducing these ideas from the 19th century and we get this neoliberal ideology um, framed as an economic uh, project when it's not mm-hmm. right it's it's a political project um, this is coming directly from bullshit jobs and also um, debt the first 5,000 years where you have Reagan and Thatcher and this movement in the 80s of we have to go back to the free market, even though we know and have to like have the entire 19th century to demonstrate that that doesn't work. That doesn't make life better for 90 percent of the population. It makes it better for at max 10 percent. Um, but it it's it's a conscious movement by the ruling class, by the people who have money and are existing in a world where money equals political power. Um, and so we have, right, the FBI and CIA assassinating yep. civil rights leaders because the civil rights leaders are pushing not just for people to be able to sit on whatever bus seat they want to, but to get fair wages um, and to be able to pursue jo- whatever jobs that they want to. Um, and turn, uh, st- start moving public sector jobs into the private sector and now we have this cultural idea that the public sector is where we find all of this waste and dumb jobs where people aren't doing anything but the evidence is just not there and we can look at things like silicon valley for direct um, examples of this right we can think about oh well the the free market produces um technological innovation but we can look at what has happened since the introduction of these neoliberal um ideas and find that hold on i'm looking for me notes. right economic growth in almost all of the industrialized world has slowed scientific and technological advancement has stagnated and younger generations can for the first time in over a century expect to be less prosperous than their parents so again remember we talked about in the last episode that there was that first generation of wage workers who um, were suddenly less well off than their peasant parents that was over a century and a half before the turn of the 20th so we're looking at 200 years ago it's been 200 years since people were definitely going to do worse uh, as a full generation do worse than their parents were um but also scientific and technological advances have stagnated so 
the internet is a product of the 1960s and 1970s so are the advancements in telephone and like cyber communications but also uh we think that all of these are the product of um the free market because we think of things like apple and microsoft and all these things but those products were developed by the public sector the iphone and the technologies that led to the iphone the technologies that led to the internet all of these technologies were developed at universities they were funded by the public and then because that's intellectual property of you know a grad student what happens is that apple then goes in buys a contract of that grad student the grad student then comes with all of their intellectual property and apple starts making the iphone the touch screen that apple um patented was developed over the course of i think it's seven years at stanford university public taxpayers paid for that i think because they can yeah yeah, I think ju- just can can we put a pin in yeah. this real quick? I just want to explain to people how funding works for grad school, because if you're not in grad school, you probably <laughs> right, don't yeah. know how this works. So what happens is, right, most universities, unless they are private universities, they are public universities, yeah. which means they are publicly funded. They get taxpayer money to run. University is not just a place where undergrads go to get their degree. What's really it's happening research. there is... Mm-hmm is research yeah most unless it is specifically a teaching college it is a research institution uh which means that you have you know professors are doing research uh and they have grad students who are also producing original research and this is in all faculties and they're applying stem humanities regardless and also they are applying for grants mostly from uh, fellowships subsidized by the from government the government in order to fund yep. particular projects and these are the only places where you can uh, you can apply for a grant and what you're proposing turn out to be utterly untrue or unworkable and it still be considered um a win right because you yeah. have learned something and you have contributed to the literature, right? Because now you know that you yeah. can't do that. And so the public sector is the only place where you can really experiment. If you spend seven years working on something and it be failing for seven years, a private company isn't going to continue to pay for you to look at that. And then you never get a touch screen on a phone. You never get Wi-Fi. You never get any of these things. All of these things come from the public sector trial and error right? essentially yeah yeah and having yeah, enough because you time have and to money be able to, to do, do trial, trial and, error. and error yeah um so w- the exactly. more that we privatize things the the more um that the that these sort of advances that we in our like zeitgeist right think of as being products of the free market they're not products of the free market they're products of public university systems um yeah and like that i and like and what we see is that in order to keep people um willing to let billionaires continue to exist and for these people to continue to make policies um that are actively against the benefit of 90 percent of the population um you you have to keep people in a system where they are working for their lives and where they think that yeah. um they can't do anything else right 
Um, and that's where you yeah. get these jobs that are seemingly a waste of money, but $30,000 for one person to sit around and do nothing, but also not have the free time to read Marx, for example, uh, is much cheaper for Amazon because then that person's not going to have time to make their own food or go to a shop and they're going to order from Amazon and they're going to order stuff from Whole Foods. They're going to order shit from Uber Eats. So you're just cycling that money back into this system that is preying off of them and not having to do any innovation, not having to produce anything for real uh, and keeping everybody unhappy and telling them that the only way to be happy is to consume stuff whereas before right at the beginning of the 19th century we have people saying the way to be happy is to produce the way to be happy is to make things the way to be happy is to be in com like communion with your fellow man uh even if that is handcrafting a cabinet together you know like that was the movement that we have and what we've what we've done is uh Dr. Graeber has this amazing analogy um, about frying fish where he says that um, there's, when he imagines hell, he imagines it as this space where you go with this deep passion for producing something, say it's cabinet making, and you are told here is where you get to go to be a cabinet maker, but in order to be a cabinet maker, you have to fry a certain amount of fish per day. Like, in your workshop, you guys collectively need a certain amount of fish fried. Um, and you become so bitter that the other people around you, when they're making cabinets, are not frying fish. And so you have to fry fish. That everyone just ends up frying fish all the time. So that everyone around them doesn't get pissed off at them. That then you end up with no cabinets and just a bunch of fried, mediocrely done fried fish. Because you're not getting the people who actually want to fry fish frying the fish right it's just nonsense bullshit that nobody wants to do in order to keep them unhappy um he calls it a system of psychological warfare uh which it really and truly is especially because what you're holding over them isn't just the ability to make the cabinets that they really want to be doing right they want to be learning how to make beautiful like scallop joined you know, quality craftsman drawers or whatever in these cabinets, and they can't. But you're also holding up the means of survival for them, them and their families over them for yeah. it, too. Um, anyway, that's the history of professionalization in the 20th century, is basically, instead of creating people who have more knowledge, who can run a system easier, who can, like, ask meaningful questions about, you know, time and being, like we have with, you know, all of the various Thomases, <laughs> but, or figuring out, you know, how to take care of people's bodies and keep people more healthy. Instead of doing things like that, we have taken people out of a production-based economy, told them they're no longer workers, they're managers, and had them do nothing and not allow them to produce anything that they want to be doing or explore anything that they want to be doing, um, and telling them that if they don't do that, they don't get to eat. Uh, it's truly horrifying, and we should all stop doing those jobs, do things that you want to be doing, and force your government to pay you for them. Uh, we need a general strike and we need a universal basic income.
this is what we're saying on our definitely not political podcast. <laughs> yeah, that was my thing. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was definitely not political. We've really done it. We did it, Devin. Margo. Whatever did my it. name is. <laughs> Whoever you are. Yeah, uh, yeah, I just... Um, I have a lot of feelings because I, I don't feel, I think that what we are doing here, but also what we are doing in our other jobs that actually pay us money is valuable and people really want to access that information and do the things that we're creating in our other jobs as well. And it's frustrating that in the system that we exist in, a thing that people universally want to access is deemed not being as as not being worthy of a living stable wage. Um, whereas yeah. a, you know, mid-level manager at, you know, an HVAC company who has they personally are saying to themselves my job is meaningless and produces nothing and contributes nothing to the world and if I disappeared no one would notice it that that is deemed worthy of you know a living wage that can support a family and you know health insurance in the U.S. and whatever uh is I think deeply morally wrong Um, And I think it hurts not just people who are trying to do jobs that they find meaningful like you and I, but also that person who is having to spend all their time doing that instead of what they might be actually passionate about. Um, And that then we, we, we are incredibly politically antagonistic towards people whose jobs absolutely 100% matter and that we cannot function without, right? We cannot function without the people who pick up our garbage. We cannot function without the yeah. people who actually physically move food from one place to another. We cannot function without teachers. Yeah. We cannot function without nurses and all of these people. We, I, I will, I will now say we also cannot function without doctors, medical doctors. Yes, physicians. they are the they are one of the. I'm few, sorry for making fun of many. They are one of the ones, few exceptions but, to the know. like professional. Things that are like, yes, uh, society would immediately fall apart if we did not have doctors. But also, like, in the same vein, we do not treat nurses as the professionals that they should be, right? No, we don't. Um, Or teachers or, like, and doctors cannot do what they do without nurses. None of those people can get to be any of those jobs without teachers. Um, and yet we are incredibly antagonistic to nurses and teachers unions, uh, while doing nothing about school administrators who are eating up school budgets and do not doing anything, right? There's like the four secretaries at every, you know, high school who are doing way overworked because they have to do everything. And then like 16 administrators who, uh, yeah, don't, yeah, I have a lot of I have a lot of, I have a lot of feelings and the the history of the system is very clear that this has been developed by the uber wealthy to ensure that they stay uber wealthy and uh by the the politics of the 1980s and backlash to the leftists who emerged from the horrors of 
the 1960s, right, and the the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War and all of the sort of like horrifying cultural moments that happened in the 1960s where people were saying no we all should we are all deserving of basic human dignity and uh a bunch of super wealthy white men were like but are you though i don't think so yeah yeah pretty much anyway Yeah. Sorry, I came. I had had to come in and make this like super. No, you were no, like, hey, I mean... lawyers existed, doctors existed. Isn't this like fun facts about how the world used to work? And then I was like, but now everything's shitty, and we should be angry about it. <laughs> I mean, I feel like this is the trajectory of most of our episodes. It's just me being like, oh, look at these quaint people from centuries ago, just like living their lives. And then the 19th century yeah, happened, and now we love it. So just, and then we all collectively made mistakes. Yeah, I mean, not that everything was like hunky dory in like the Middle Ages. Like it did not; it was not dope to be a peasant. But also, they knew that like if you got better technology, you could work less, right? The fucking plow. Well, like. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I think I think this is something I do need to uh, to emphasize is that yes, being a peasant was not great because you know you didn't have like antibiotics water. or like running water, central heat and air, like technological things. But I'm also not going to sit here and be like, yeah, it sure was terrible that they had a hundred days <laughs> off a year. More than a hundred days off a year because they all realize that, like, yeah, I actually don't have to yeah. work every single day. They're like, eh, no, yeah. we're just and they, you know, we're we're just gonna take an entire like two to three weeks at Christmas yeah. to like have a party, do the same thing at Easter. Every Sunday we have off, and then like about once a week there's a Saint Day, so you also have to take that yeah. off and like throw in some festivals. Some and they got it's like, they got a bra- yeah, brand that was new good. heavy that was plow good. that they were like, yo, yeah. I can do this field in half with my ox in half the time it would have taken me to do this before and didn't think hey maybe i should make up for this time with more work they were like i can use this to like learn a new craft that will like better my life or i can just sit under a tree for a while like yeah they were almost certainly just like I can, I'm gonna go and like yeah. hang out with my friends and family. <laughs> go sit like, by a river and go fishing. Alive. Like I don't need this. Like no one was sitting there like, mm, yeah. but if I'm not still working this field, have I earned this wheat? No, they were like, dope, a plow, yeah. my ox no. can earn this wheat. Yeah, exactly. Like it it is a very different uh mentality, I think. I think the the idea that like and also, again, I'm not trying to be like, everything was great no. in the Middle Ages. But I th- I think I can say mm. with some... It was uh, universally pretty with, shitty, with, but... with some... <laughs> yes, I mean, but but I, I think I can also say with some confidence that if you had shown up and been like, you know, you shouldn't feed your neighbor who's like old and can't really work that much. And, and you should just let them starve to death because they haven't earned... Food. Their their food. I think they would have like 
chased you out of town with torches and pitchforks. <laughs> like, I can say that pretty definitively, that if you rolled up and were like, you know, maybe some children just don't deserve to eat and we should put them in debt for their lunches. I think they would kill you. Like, putting it out yeah. there. Um, not to not to get all political, but I earned my universal basic in- income by uh, being alive. Yes. Yes. I, I will say, like, I... Everyone, I just, I can't believe everyone deserves to have food is a radical statement. Like, why do I have to live in a world where everyone should, like, have a home to go to? No one should be without a home is like, wow, I can't believe you're literally Stalin. I can't believe you are literally the reincarnation of Mao himself. Like... Are you kidding me? Yeah. <sighs> so this is our uh, our happy our Thanksgiving stance, to is, all um, of our Americans. Yes. Um, maybe you can take this Thanksgiving to not just go and give cans of soup to the, your homeless shelter, uh, like you should be doing on Thanksgiving and all of the other times, but also, uh, but also stage a also, strike it- or something. I was also going to say, if you're going to donate stuff to the food bank, straight up just donate yes. money. Because they can they can buy in Fresh vegetables. Like, huge yeah. quantities. Yeah. And and also because they yeah. can buy like... In bulk. It, like directly from the supply chain in bulk. Yeah. Like it is... I, I say this as someone who did like volunteer yeah. work in Becca. You, you yeah, know what I mean? Exactly. Where I'm Don't like, take your I, almost I expired the shelf the goods. Yeah. Please do not do that. Please, if you have a dollar to spend on a can of soup, like just give yeah. them that dollar because they can get like ten yeah. cans of soup for that dollar. Like it's it's unfortunate that like yeah. the world is set up <laughs> in this way, but like genuinely, just give the yeah. food bank money. And also like give money to your local mutual aid fund and or to any organization working in your area to provide people with housing and shelter that is not like time based that is just like we will give you a house um there's a lot of those popping up around the u.s so look for look for your local leftist groups (laughs) none of my family is going to listen to my podcast anymore well, I mean, none of my I, I I keep mine on the down low for my family, so you know. I mean, I will also say though, I think, um, you know, even if you're not finding your leftist groups, if if that's not an option, I mean, there's plenty of organizations just generally yeah, yeah, yeah. who are trying trying to feed people, clothe people, yeah. take care of them. I think that's that's good. Uh, this is going to be an extra long episode. <laughs> I'm that too, Sorry. but I. No, but I, I, no, no, it's fine. I, I was actually going to say, because I think we should address that this will be our last episode until 2022. Yes. So everyone, we're leaving you off on an extra long, extra political <laughs> episode. Please, uh, we will, we will still be active on social media, but we will not be posting episodes because uh, everything kind of fell apart for a while uh, for yep. both of us. And we um, have fallen far behind schedule. So we're taking an extended holiday break to time catch up uh, where and yes, to... where we are going to be filming and 
yeah. recording and editing and doing things so that we can come to you in January fresh and refreshed. So, I mean, we're not really taking a break from Baba Yaga. We're just taking a break from posting. Yeah, we're going to get uh, new um, episodes. as much uh, prep done so that we can get super excellent quality work out to you guys in the new year um, regularly. Uh, yeah. So, uh, super sorry that this past month has been erratic. Uh, We've just both been dealing with, well, we, I think both of us have had some some uh, health stuff yeah. going on, and then your yeah. cat died. So, that became a whole thing. And me new. Yes, it has been a bit of a three-ring circus between you being sick, <laughs> me being sick, um everything falling apart yeah. for a bit and then dying pets and and assorted assorted personal things that are happening just in general but uh yeah so we do want to thank all of you for sticking by yeah. us and staying till the end of this this erratic episode yeah but uh we will see you again in january and we will see you this time because we're coming to you with new content forms video time it's gonna be great it's going to be very great i hope uh and i hope that you all like what we have planned because i I think it's gonna be so to all our americans uh happy thanksgiving um shortly following that happy hanukkah um merry christmas happy kwanzaa any other holidays that are happening solstices uh, yeah solstice Yeah, yeah, the solstice is happening, uh, New Year's yeah. happening, Kwanzaa happens somewhere in there. I am not up on all my dates happy, for everything, happy holidays, but my point is... Happy winter holidays, yes, happy holidays. to everyone uh, who is celebrating something, and yeah. And if you're not celebrating anything, like, just yeah. have a nice time. I, I hope you have a nice nice month, yeah. month or so, and we'll see yeah. you in January. Alright, bye. Thank you for listening to the Babiaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week! Bye.